You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and back with me after a break of two weeks is David Leach, ITK analyst. David, um, welcome back. Giles, it's great to be back and I hope you had a great time on leave in West Australia. Uh, Such a lot has been going on in the electricity market. Look, an awful lot's been going on in the electricity market, and we will round that up. Sort of um, purchases and rulemaking decisions and plans announced by AEMO. And on the other ca- on, on the other side, um, absolutely bugger all happening on policy front, um, and we'll talk about that too. But um, first, um, I think we should actually play the interview that you did while I was away um, with Fluence, um, the battery storage developer. Um, fascinating interview. Uh, yes, with Chad Kababi, who is the um, uh, Senior Manager of Business Development. Um, he has some background in investment banking, actually, in research before he uh, went on to work at Fluence. And uh, I guess he's right on top of everything that's going on in the battery space, utility battery space here in Australia. Indeed, they've got one or two of the uh, big batteries that we now have operating in the grid and, um, and also under construction. But um, let's have a listen to this interview right now. Here's David talking to Jad Kababi from Fluence. Hi, Jad. Uh, thanks for talking to Energy Insiders today. Uh, I might just uh, start by asking uh, what you've been focusing on in the storage space over the past six months or so. Sure. Th- thanks for being. Thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's good to be here. So we've. We've, uh, I guess, kind of seen the energy storage industry in Australia transition from uh, this phase where there's been a lot of interest and, and, and transactions have gone through with, with government grant funding. So the Ballarat project, the Hornsdale project, a few others, there's you know, a second round of, of funding coming through from South Australia and, and, uh, and, and also a project program in New South Wales and arena has been very active. But I think uh, it's sort of widely acknowledged that those funding streams uh, are generally going to be coming to an end over the next little while. So people are sort of looking at transitioning uh, from a business case and a project development point of view. You know, how, do, how do these projects, how does energy storage projects in all kinds of applications and, and customer types and, and, uh, and applications and usage cases, how do they get deployed uh, without this, this, uh, this, this prop up from, from grant funding? You know, so how do you get enough revenue and, and where do you get it from? One of the uh, perpetual problems in batteries is it's always been a number of value cases, but uh, it's always been hard to find the one value case that makes a project uh, viable. So we have this uh, concept, I guess, of uh, value stacking. But if you, um, and I guess uh, initially batteries have been in Australia getting into the uh, ancillary services, FCAS type markets first, and then we saw at the Energy and Mines conference there seems to be an increasing role for them in like smoothing uh, out you know momentary interruptions to, to power supplies, which uh, I guess uh, reduces the need for like backup generation to have to run at very short notice. So, uh, uh, but of course the the big opportunity that everyone really sees is in the uh, energy shifting uh, arbitrage. Uh, uh, how are you seeing the? opportunities in Australia over the next year or two in each of those categories or other categories. I guess we, we also haven't talked about the potential use of batteries 
sort of uh, for, for virtual transmission, which is a sort of another special use case, but could be like a end of a rainbow chasing that one. Well, I mean, I think the first point is that energy storage is capable of the sorts of things you're talking about. You know, the, the managing uh, you know, real power, reactive power and frequency is something that storage has been doing for a long time. We've got a number of applications that have done that globally. Uh, and, and, you know, you talk about usage cases and value streams at the moment, uh, the only available ones for grid connection, grid connected systems in Australia are FCAS and arbitrage. Uh, there are other sort of uh, more creative ways of, of earning revenue, which we're working on. So using financial instruments or, or you know, looking at curtailment or, or things like that. Uh, but in a lot of cases, the storage system is capable of doing these things, but there's either an insufficient market me- mechanism or, or a nascent market me- mechanism that doesn't provide enough revenue or uh, uh, it's it's there isn't any mechanism at all, so it hasn't even been thought about. Uh, so it's difficult for these projects to say, well, I can could theoretically do all these things. I could sign a bilateral agreement with a TNSP to provide them services, but there's actually no mechanism to capture it. So, you know, thinking more broadly about you know how we can solve some of the network issues and and you know problems at the TNSPs and sort of at the AMO level, looking at ISP sorts of problems, uh, you know things like virtual transmission lines. Uh, which is a concept that says you, know, you utilise storage to optimise how your transmission lines work. Uh, you know, you're, 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 they can act as a buffer to protect that line so that they don't trip off, like an interconnector you know, increases their, their ability to, to do what they do uh, or, or increase the capacity of that line that it otherwise wouldn't have. Uh, or, or provide an insurance policy for, for these sorts of lines to say. So, well, so yeah. I, I know that Transgrid and uh, PowerLink uh, looked at that option quite uh, seriously enough to make it a, a formal option five. But I guess uh, I don't know what. The, I haven't seen anything since uh, that project went into AER. Sort of all these projects seem to get to a certain stage and they go into AER and it's like going into a black hole or something like that. But I, I, I kind of feel it's not going to be the one that makes it out uh, even but it's great that it got there but it's, it's kind of like a, a participant award but uh, no gold star well, well i think it's it's hugely significant that they even considered it mm. uh you know if you look at the history of these regulatory investment tests uh it's it's historically been very difficult for non-network options or alternative options to conventional poles and wires to even be considered mm. uh, so i think we think it's actually quite substantial that that a, a tnsp is thinking this progressively to even look at that option and say well we're actually going to go through the numbers and, and see what this looks like. Uh, I, I, have no, I've, I have no better idea than anyone else that, that if they're going to pick that or something else or, or, or nothing at all. So, um, But I, I think it is pretty substantial that they're looking at it and I, I would expect and hope that, that other TNSPs would follow suit and DNSPs for that matter, that they can utilise a different set of tools to solve these problems that are, are often quite like quite substantially more effective and can improve economics. So you can deploy them more quickly, you can defer assets, you can generate more value than, than doing things the plain vanilla way. Certainly speed of deployments and uh, minimum space requirements have always been some of the great assets of, uh, that, that batteries offer to, to a system if you want to get something done in a hurry. Uh, let's just talk a, a little bit about current market conditions. You mentioned the hiatus, but I guess there's still a lot of solar projects and uh, we've just had a discussion of uh, DC to DC and essentially rethinking your project with the idea that you're going to generate as much clipping energy as possible and then put that into storage. What's the uh, kind of uh, level of inquiry that you're, you're seeing in regard to that? 
I think a lot of the entities that are feeling the pinch with, with the duck curve, I think you know, the duck curve is sort of a well-advertised thing in Australia. In places like California, it's, it's more progressed in terms of its depth and, and, uh, and its bite. I think the entities that are well along the track in terms of sophistication, knowledge, capability, deploying assets generally in the NEM and particularly solar assets, they're thinking about these things saying, well, how can we do this better? You know, is the, if I put an additional megawatt of, of solar at a particular point in the grid, uh, is it, and, and then try and add storage later, is it actually makes it getting a better result than just trying to add them together or just storage alone? So they're thinking about these sorts of problems. So I think the DC coupled uh, solution is something people are thinking about, but I think they hit a wall at some point where they think, well, okay, how do I get it registered? What is it going to be classified as? Is it scheduled? Is it a semi-scheduled asset? Uh, is it separate DUIDs? Is it single DUID? Uh, it, you know, it is truly a hybrid asset, and I'm not sure if AMO, uh, you know, how, how much AMO has, has considered these frameworks to actually be able to deploy it. So in, in practical terms, we're, we're at a point where people are thinking about it but not actually doing anything? Not quite yet. There's a lot of... There, there are. We're, we're certainly very keen to, to go through the process with AMO. Uh, we've had a lot of inquiry about it from a high-level perspective, and, and also keep in mind the, the way you build up the business case for this sort of project is quite different. So uh, you're actually, it, it, from from a, a conventional solar case, it actually looks quite different to to uh, to build up solar and storage. Yeah, um, and if we talk about um, arbitrage, like in the United States, we see, I think, largely with the assistance of the ITC, where, where batteries can qualify, that uh, uh, there is a case for using them to supplant, supplant gas peakers, particularly where there's some policy support uh, at, at a state level. Um, but in Australia, it seems to me that when you work the arithmetic through, and these are my numbers, I mean, 400 US dollars a kilowatt hour is kind of a number that's quoted in the United States. And I understand that varies a lot depending on how many hours, you know, there's obviously all your initial infrastructure charge. And, uh, but if you translate that to Australia, it's about $600 a megawatt hour, uh, $600 a kilowatt hour, Aussie. That, uh, it's still very difficult to make straight arbit arbitrage profits. I mean, I mean, my back of the envelope calculation suggests somewhere between $100 and $150 Aussie differential needed, you know. Or, uh, I mean, how do you think about it and how do clients think about it? Well, I think there's been so the first point is there's been a number of analyses that come out have come out from say BNEF and others that have shown that that uh, storage can hybridise with other assets are already starting to beat conventional assets like gas peakers uh, at various places around the world. And you know a lot of that is situationally dependent sometimes, but the broad brush is that's happening very quickly. And as the costs for storage come down and the skill and, and knowledge of, of deploying these assets goes up, I think you'll see that equation change very quickly. In terms of the exact numbers around deployment, I mean, I think the, the dollars per, per megawatt hour are actually probably a little bit lower than that. There's ways to achieve that. I think you can... Uh, you know, think about your asset and what it's doing and, and, and how it's deployed and how it's going to operate from a dispatch perspective to actually get uh, an outcome that's pretty close to, to commercial now. It really comes a question about, about risk and it comes back to this question about value stream. So uh, a lot of people look at the FCAS value stream and say, well, there's a, you know, my, my, my consultant or, or modelling partner or whoever is doing the analysis shows that there's quite a bit of value there currently. Uh, and you know, assets like Ballarat and Hornsdale have proven that there is a lot of value there that can be captured. 
but it becomes a question about risk perspective, right? So am I an entity that, that can take risk on that value stream when it's, it's not strictly speaking bankable and, and it's the risks there for the money's there for the first guy but if you're the fourth guy into the market uh, it's going to, I mean the FCAS market is definitely limited in its size isn't it um, yeah and we've seen that in other parts of the world so in the PGM market we've seen uh, you know the frequency regulation uh, market there the value declined quite substantially but interestingly there they actually pay for performance yes. which is something we've advocated in Australia in a number of occasions where storage is far better at performing frequency regulation functions than other assets and they actually pay for performance there such that uh, the, the trigger was there to, to encourage storage onto the grid which it then which then happened and occurred and now the market is, is saturated so in Australia is that going to happen eventually yes I think we're still a reasonable amount of time away from that considering that uh, there's still a considerable need for FCAS currently uh, there's not a great deal of batteries on, on the market currently. And, uh, you know, if you look at asset closures like Liddell and in the future, Loyang and others, uh, that will, you know, there's probably a whole discussion about what, what the view of FCAS is and how we unpack that. But I think there'll be an increased need. Uh, certainly, inertia is going to decline. I mean, physical inertia. Uh, I've heard your uh, colleague, uh, Merrick Kubik, talk about digital inertia. Uh, he wants to have rather than synthetic. Mm. Uh, but, I mean, I'm not even sure that what we really want is, is voltage and, uh, and, and uh, system strength control. And uh, um, so I think it's a whole new ball game in terms of the system. Just coming back to costs, back to capital costs, because it's a, it's a perpetual topic and it's it's one that uh, you can read what BNEF says, but uh, provided you pay fifty thousand dollars for a seat subscription or, or read one of the many reposts about it. But what's been your experience uh, in in the year that you've been in your seat at looking what's happening to the to the market here in Australia? I guess we can all see the sell costs and things, but. There's a lot of balance of system issues and uh, installation issues and uh, dealing with AEMO, uh, one of the most complicated organisations in the world these days. Yeah. Uh, perhaps uh, it has to be. What are you seeing? Uh, so I think thinking about a system holistically is probably the number one comment I'd make. Uh, what we see, depending on who we're dealing with with particular customers, is... Uh, if, if it's a procurement person, they think about components and how can I get the cheapest components, but it's actually, which actually starts to ignore the concept of an integrated system. You know, what, what you end up needing at the end of the day is a system that is uh, engineered correctly, uh, put together safely and correctly, and can then be operated safely and correctly for, for you know, a long time, 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, but then also the guarantees and warranties. I mean, a lot of systems around the world, you know, there's lots of public publicised uh, news articles about systems that have been integrated poorly and then have not gone so well. You know, what we bring to the table is is an integrated solution that does have that engineering skill and you know a decade of, of knowledge and know-how. And yes, uh, so yes. it's not just buying things off the shelf and sticking together and saying thanks very much. I've got I've got no doubt that Fluence has got the skills, but but. Um, um, uh, the costs have been coming down, have they? Yes, yes, they have, and and for all, really all kinds of components. Uh, there's there's a few sort of year-on-year year, uh, developments in the battery industry. I mean, forgive the pun, but it is, the battery industry is driven by the automotive industry. Yes. Uh, you know, when when the likes of Toyota and Volkswagen and Mercedes-Benz and the list goes on, when they start to procure entire production lines, uh, you know, the stationary storage market is is uh, it follows suit because we benefit from that that production capability and that production capacity. So, uh, you know, as we see that ramp up in a substantial way, you know, we're continuing to see the cost come down. 
Uh, and you know, the other factor too is in Australia and globally, you know, we're, we're fluent as an entity is much more capable and smarter about how we deploy things like balance of plant. You know, how we engineer this. How do you deploy what? Sorry, uh, balance of plant. Balance so, of plant. Yeah. You know, things like switch gear and 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 you know, physical layout on site. How do you optimize to minimize DC cable length and that right. sort of thing? The, your most expensive components. How do you you know, try and minimise buying is more than you need, yes. you know, sort of thing, but maintaining high engineering standards and safety. So, so Fluence um, is adding more value than it used to. Uh, well, it's a new company, but I'll put it this way: it's finding ways to uh, leverage its own expertise. Is that right? What, what is always, just yeah. what is Fluence? I mean, you don't make the batteries. Uh, 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 per se, um, um, you don't own the batteries. Uh, what 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 is Fluence's core capability? We're a team of engineers. We're, we're a system integrator. So we take uh, components from tier one suppliers. You know, looking at, at safety uh, capability in terms of technical capability, uh, warranties and guarantees, manufacturing capability. You know, counterparty balance sheet from our suppliers' perspectives to then. To then engineer up a, a integrated solution, an integrated solution for a customer, for a usage case, for an application, which is which can be flexible or not, uh, and exist for you know 10, 15, 20 years, that can do its job, and then also have the benefit of being able to be guaranteed and warranted for a long-term period, backed by a company that is going to be around in 10, 15, 20 years. With so, a, with a so Fluence is, is carrying the warranty itself or or it's just ensuring that well, it supplies? We can, we can provide all kinds of different warranties and guarantees for our systems. Yes. So, and we take a holistic system view. So uh, we're not just saying, well, we're only guaranteeing the batteries or the inverters and the rest is kind of up to you. So if we're going to provide you a turnkey system, it's on, you know, we can, we can look at it holistically. And can answer. I just ask, since we're talking, battery life is obviously another key, and system life is, mm. is a, you know, batteries don't last as long as dams, let's let's be honest, and unless they're tailing dams, they don't always last all that long either. Right. But, um, so when you talk about warranties, what do you actually warranty? A certain level of performance for so many years, or, or is, is on each on on the components, or for the system as a whole? Uh, do you, what what is it that you actually guarantee? I mean, typically it's it's the it's what the batteries are doing. So you're absolutely right. It's, it's a, a level of performance for a number of years, and that can be cut in a number of different ways. Is it a firm capacity so the megawatt hours won't degrade over time, or is it based on a number of cycles or throughput? And there's a lot of different sort of ways we can cut that. And as an example, if your system is is uh, is doing only, say, an FCAS or a primary frequency regulation, it, it's going to behave quite differently to a, a, sing, a, a daily single cycle, say, shifting solar yes. solar load. So modelling that out for the system's life is quite different. So we can provide guarantees and warranties which reflect that usage case. Yes. But also the, the other layer is we can build in flexibility. Say, well, okay, you're, you're buying a system, let's say for the first handful of years, you have a good idea of what's going to be doing, say arbitrage and FCAS in Australia. Uh, there may be new markets or you might find a different function uh, or it needs to adapt. Yes. So, okay, you still have a usable asset. You still have lots of um, petrol in the tank, so to speak, in terms of usable battery uh, capability and, and cycles. So, how do you, how can you repurpose that asset and have the warranties and guarantees uh, go along with you with that flexibility? So that's that's something we can absolutely do as well. So, they, they, I mean, these assets are flexible technically. They have to be flexible over their lifetime as well, and allow customers to change their usage. And, and so, another uh, debate, I think, from the systems point of view, I'm always trying to. Uh, put two hats on at once and see how much uh, dispatchable energy the system needs as opposed to how much individual projects need. Mm. Um, 
I guess, and then there's also storage out at the fringe of the grid, that is behind the metre, which is going to be, I think, actually happen at a certain rate and, and, and make a difference. I guess what, just, you know, stepping back from fluence just for a second and thinking about the role of utility batteries more broadly, do you, do you think they should be, how do you, do you have any views just generally how they should be deployed or, or should they be owned by individual solar plants and or... You know, should the system think, of, should there be a market for storage separately? I mean, if you were designing part of this market re- redesign team, uh, yeah. good luck. But, uh, you know, with your storage hat on, how, how would you be thinking about how market design needs to change? Well, I think there needs to be, the broad brush is there needs to be triggers for storage to encourage the flexible flexibility on, on the grid uh, from a generation perspective, from a load perspective, from a system operation perspective, both transmission and distribution. So I think building in sufficient triggers to encourage storage and encourage that flexibility. Now, drilling down one level to say, well, is that an ownership from individual projects or the TNSPs or, uh, you know, third parties or... or you know, anyone really. That's a sort of secondary discussion which is probably based on the regulatory framework that we will inherit and, and continue to operate in in Australia. In other parts of the world, it works quite differently. You know, they've got vertically integrated um, you know, utilities that can just go out and buy what they need to and get approved by the regulator. Just just from that point of view, I, I recently uh, gave a gold star award to West Australian guys where, where the uh, network owner and the retailer teamed up to put power packs on the, ha- on the street level, mm. you know, uh, so a sort of intermediate solution that took it arbitraged out the costs. I'm just wondering whether from a storage point of view you see this separation uh, between uh, regulated and unregulated between the retail and the networkers. To me it, it looks like a problem as we move into a, uh, batteries don't really wear either hat all that well. Uh, I, mean, I think if you think about the technical jobs that they have to do, regulating frequency real power, reactive power, that kind of thing, they do them really well but I think fitting them into regulatory frameworks that are legacy frameworks that aren't necessarily built for storage, that's a, a different ball game. Uh, I think, you know, AMO struggled with how to fit storage into their existing frameworks, both technical, commercial and operational. Um, and and I think the regulatory frameworks more generally will, will struggle to do that. Well, we're seeing that with, uh, you know, and we're not involved in, in um, distributed energy markets or that sort of thing, but there is a lot of work being done on how do you actually make them work and set, have an adequate, uh, you know, price and, and technical triggers to dispatch these, these things in the right way and have them actually be commercial. Um, you know, th- I think the, co- the point we'd make is I think they'll have those sorts of solutions will have their place because uh, you know there's, there will be adequate economic and technical benefits for individual customers, say a householder or a business. But in terms, if you step back and think about efficiency of deploying megawatts and doing jobs uh, out there in the transmission grid and the distribution grid, it's far more effective and efficient to deploy bigger assets clustered where they need to be and you know that might change you might move assets you might reconfigure them later on might grow them or shrink them um, but it, it deploying you know tens or hundreds of megawatts and a single asset is going to be far more efficient than deploying that same number of megawatts across thousands of households and going door to door to install them I, I'm not sure that I fully agree with that uh, um, I, I can see the cost advantages but I can also see that uh, around the fringe of the grid you get a lot of resilience but it's, it's an ongoing debate so I'm going to have to uh, wind it up and I'm sure you've got uh, more things to go at this fascinating solar asset management conference but 
I just wanted to ask you to put your, uh, uh, you know, forecasting hat on. I do forecasts, and so I don't expect anyone to necessarily hold me to my forecasts. But, I mean, I wonder if, uh, I think, what is the battery market in Australia now at utility scale level is, uh, would it be 200 megawatt hours, uh, something like that? Uh, I'd have to check the number, but it's roughly right, yeah. yeah. What would you expect it to be in three years' time? Uh, I would say potentially an order of magnitude bigger than that. An order of magnitude. Well, yeah. that, that sounds like a, a great business. No wonder Fluence has got, what, eight people here in Australia, have you now? And uh, I think that's probably growing, is it, year on year? That's, that's why we're here. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, predictions are invariably wrong, but hopefully I'm wrong on the, on the upside, not the downside. Thanks very much for taking the time to chat with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. And that was Jad Kababi from Fluence talking to David at a recent conference in Sydney. David, look, um, look, fascinating interview. I'm, I'm, I'm particularly intrigued about battery storage, and I know from our stats on our website that our readers are also fascinated by anything to do with battery storage. Interesting, though, that uh, AEMO came out with its little report, a bit, a bit of a, um, a deposit on its sort of pattern of thinking leading up to the integrated system plan, which it will release um, the updated version next now next year, actually, not this year. Um, not much mention in that plan of battery storage, um, just a big focus on pumped hydro and sort of um, seasonal things. What did you think? Well, I think storage has got a, in general, is a big role to play, and I don't think myself there'll be any one form of storage that's dominant. Uh, I want to draw a contrast, and I wrote a bit of an article about it, uh, about what's going on in the United States, where we have uh, quite a lot of projects and states that are supporting battery plus solar or battery plus solar and wind um, uh, as a sort of replacement for gas, even in some fairly conventional sort of applications. But when you actually look at the prices of utility scale batteries, they're still working out to, at best, about, in, on my calculations, Aussie $550 a kilowatt hour uh, uh, of capacity. And uh, it's hard to make money out of energy arbitrage in Australia that way. And so the it still tends to be niche applications that are getting into the mainstream. and. Uh, just to finish off, uh, I think myself, the household battery space uh, and indeed household uh, distributed electricity, as you know, Giles, is still a very big player, <laughs> a growing player in the Australian market. Yes, look, it is. Um, and uh, look, one of the issues that you touched on with Jared from um, Fluence was the value stack of batteries. So batteries can do many things. We think about it in terms of arbitrage, we think about it in terms of FCAS, we think about it in terms of sort of a network spending substitute, but there's an awful lot more um, that could be done and could be extracted in the value, but not really recognised by the market. So there's a bunch of things going on now with the regulators and the rule makers. How confident are you that we're actually going to get it, A, done, and two, get it done right? Uh, well, uh, one, always, one lives in hope, Charles, uh, and uh, uh, deals with reality every day, unfortunately. Look, uh, at the, the, another conference, the storage conference that was run, the uh, West Australian guys came in and presented where they had a kind of hybrid approach, uh, where they had a Tesla power pack, uh, the bigger Tesla battery, sitting on the street front, and uh, some of the network uh, values were taken off the price of that, and then the re remaining value was sort of... Uh, offered to households in the street where they could uh, put, uh, I think it was eight kilowatt hours of storage into the bat that household, bat into that street level battery every night and take it out. Now, I thought that was a great idea uh, because you didn't have to have eight 
batteries installed, so you saved eight electricians' installation costs. And there's about a 30% arbitrage between on price between Tesla power packs and Tesla walls. So, you know, the market will find, uh, I guess the, the, the bigger point here it was the cooperation between the network company and the retailer that enables more of those value stacks to be uh, a, a, achieved. And, and the more I look at the uh, financial separation between wires and poles companies and the gentailers uh, in Australia, the less convinced I am that it's the right model going forward for the transition. Well, I've actually been banging on about that for a few years, ever since sort of doing a bit of research into the way they do it in, in Europe. And um, yes, I think our vertical integration is um, really um, unfortunately done because basically the um, the generators and the retailers see um, the both parts of the business as an arbitrage of the other or or. or or, or, or a um, or a hedge, and um, the sensible integration would be between networks and networks and the retailers. And uh, of course, we don't have that except in um, in places like Horizon Energy in, in the remote part of WA. And we've actually seen that they've been very progressive in in some of their thinking and getting um, these microgrids and um, and renewables and storage in there. And um, yeah, look, I agree that that stuff that they're doing in Western Australia um, with those community scale batteries is really interesting. And I was talking to the people at Western Power. After that conference that we attended there, the Energy Minds conference, um, and um, yeah, no, look, absolutely fascinating. But once again, they're just waiting for more rules to be changed. And um, AEMO, I know, are um, are getting you know quite an urgent message out out there about that because they're seeing changes in the uptake of renewables and the uptake of rooftop solar and WA increasing very rapidly. And of course, they're an isolated grid and they've got to do everything themselves and contain it within that grid, unlike um, the NEM, which... Um, now, it's interesting. The um, I mean, what Judd said about um, batteries as a virtual network, I thought that was pretty interesting because I didn't see... I haven't seen much of that in some of the mainstream thinking yet from from the regulators um, well well as i said uh, i don't know about a virtual network but certainly a virtual transmission um part of the queensland new south wales one of the serious trans one of the options that made it onto the serious consideration list and there were about five of those um for that upgrade between queensland and new south wales was to use a, a, a battery as a virtual link uh now i i think that the economics don't quite work for it but the concept works and we've already seen uh, virtual uh, links in gas transportation. Uh, this brings me on to the, you, you spoke about rules and regulations and, uh, you know, the, um, I still think we're in a terrible state in policy at the moment. We've got this uh, group of regulatory bodies all sort of seemingly pursuing slightly different agendas. You know, the ESB agenda is fairly closely aligned, I would argue, with AEMO. The AEMC agenda is fairly closely aligned with John Pearce, uh, who, <laughs> who of course is a member of the ESB, but I think thinks that he knows more about it than they do uh, and how to run things. And then we've got the AER, which has been charged with uh, putting in place uh, uh, the federal government's uh, sort of re regulatory price regime. And meanwhile, we're not getting the sort of coordination uh, or rule development uh, that we really need. And uh, we're seeing transmission spending, which I uh, regard as very important, even in a highly distributed system, uh, struggling. And uh, the Kogarty reform process, uh, people need to think about it. It's a major uh, issue and change in the way the market has been run. 
the idea that essentially generators are going to be responsible for transmission, to put it very simply, and MLFs are going to be calculated on a five-minute basis. Like, that's uh, the sort of simple answer that, that, that'll that solve all the market's problems, Giles. <laughs> and the Kagati process really is just sort of, yeah, actually sort of tying in the um, the, the construction of generation and, and, and transmission, having a bit more of a coordinated approach. And David actually has written an article for a new economy, which um, was published last week, and um, I think it's quite an informative one. So I put guide um, uh, readers and, and listeners to that article if you want to find out more. Um, what you said, though, about the lack of... Um, well, coordination. I mean, we, we discovered this week, I think, that we didn't discover, but you know, we were reminded this week that um, Angus Taylor, the energy minister, is even ducking calling any COAG um, energy ministers meeting. They haven't met since last December when he didn't like the outcome. He feels that he can't control the outcome of any future meeting, so he simply hasn't called one. Um, you know, he's at the moment absent on holidays. Um, but um, it's hard to tell the difference. Well, I don't know why COAG, I mean, I must not understand how COAG works, at, uh, uh, which is, of course is very likely, but I would have thought it was, uh, it was supposed to be a joint uh, meeting where everyone pretty much got a vote and it didn't have to be called by the federal government. But of course you do in the end have to have, it's supposed to be a meeting of the minds. Look, uh, another topic, uh, Giles, that I think we need to focus on uh, is that these thermal generators, I know we've had the generator report card uh, coming out from the Global Roam and, and, and Greenview people that uh, basically suggested that generator outages are no worse now than they used to be. But, you know, what we're seeing is some big profit downgrades. From AGL has said that their 2020 profit is going to be down between 80 and 100 million as a result, after tax as a result of the Loyang A uh, unit outage. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've just had a major uh, 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 unit blow up at Mortlake Gas Station in Victoria. So that's, that's quite significant, two big units out of Victoria. Last summer, your lawn power station had a whole lot of outages, um, so you wouldn't want them to happen again. Um, at Mount Piper in New South Wales, the power station works fine. The trouble is it hasn't got any coal, so that they're reduced to burning plastic. I mean, that, perhaps that's been a bit cynical, but, you know, they're, t- they're having to truck coal into that mine. And uh, overall, uh, Energy Australia's main power stations are delivering 20% 20% less energy than they did a year ago. Uh, there are uh, scheduled outages still to come at other major power stations, such as, such as a Raring down the track. Um, um, you know, there aren't very many of these thermal units running, running the show anymore. Uh, so I wish we had more renewable energy on stream right now. And that's where we'll have to leave this week's podcast. There was one final exchange with David, but thanks to our wonderful NBN, it, uh, that part of the track didn't get uploaded. Anyway, thanks to David from ITK and his interview with Jad Kabadi from uh, Fluence. Thanks to all the listeners. Thanks also to our sponsors, particularly Solaray, who's been with us for t- more than two years and is still with us. Um, also to What Watchers, um, who were also with us for two years but have uh, now bowed out, and that's created a space for another sponsor. If anyone wishes to step forward please get in contact um, i'd also like to point out the upcoming electric vehicle transition conference being hosted by renew economy and the driven it's got a terrific lineup it's um, going to be happening in sydney in late august and we've got more details on the website now and we will issue the final program later but it should be a fantastic um, conference lots to talk about and lots of people with some really interesting ideas there so look forward to seeing you there thank you very much for listening to today's podcast we'll be back again next week bye for now 
Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solaray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.